Last time I was here, all I could look at was one red light. I'm, I feel happier with people here. I got some big white ones, though. However, be that as it may. We've been exploring the words of wisdom in the Bible by looking at what's called the wisdom books, um, Job, Ecclesiastics, Proverbs. Today I'd like to migrate to the New Testament and have a look at a, a book that also says a lot about wisdom. It's the book of James. The book of James was written by the oldest of Jesus' brothers to the Christian churches who, after Stephen's execution, scattered to Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, Syria, Antioch. James was the overseer of the Judean church and a leader of the Jerusalem council. You may remember there was a dispute as to whether um, Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be part of the Christian church. And it was James that resolved that discussion. He was known to be an exceptionally good man. He had an interesting nickname in that he was called Camel Knees because he had calluses on his knees from excessive times in prayer. In James 1, verses 5 and 6, we read, If any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. When we look at the verses in the chapter previous to that, we get the idea that this um, urging was about a time where there was much difficulty, many trials, persecution, conflict, and um, James is talking about wisdom in the midst of that. It is the wisdom to know how we should react in difficulty. How do we answer questions like, where was God in this, when this tragedy happened? How could a loving God allow this to happen? Wisdom requires that we respond with patience, not with passion. If we respond with passionate anger, that's normal for the natural man. But as Christians, we need to respond with patience. Wisdom, in fact, is the secret of facing trials, as James says in chapter 1, with pure joy. This passage also provides a key understanding that applies to all kinds of prayer. First, the scripture tells us that God will provide wisdom if we simply ask him. So it's laid out in scripture. We believe that scripture comes from God. Then in 1 John 5.14, it tells us, this assurance we have in approaching God, that's how we pray, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have what we ask for. With that promise, we need simply to ask God for wisdom, and he'll provide it through his Holy Spirit. Second, we're cautioned. 
when he asks, he must not doubt. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. That's interesting. So doubt ties in with failure to have your prayers answered. In all cases, when we pray, we must not get doubt God's ability to give us what we ask for. Doubt becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, if we doubt that God will act, perhaps he won't act. The passage, uh, sorry, James describes two kinds of wisdom in um, chapter 3, 13 to 18. He describes wisdom that comes from heaven, and he describes another kind of wisdom that is unspiritual and of the devil. Perhaps he was telling the church, he was writing to what attitudes the church should display rather than the attitudes he saw as he visited. Here's what the passage said. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him, it, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. At the beginning of this short passage, we see James setting a trap for his listeners. Hopefully we don't get trapped as well. He asked, who is wise and understanding among you? Many of his listeners, and perhaps many of us, might say, yeah, that, that, that's me. I'm wise. I have understanding more than anyone else. Might we say that? And then James uses his trap. It's easy to claim that we have wisdom. We often think of ourselves in grander terms than we should. James Trapp essentially says, okay, prove it. True wisdom is accompanied by good deeds. Where are your good deeds? True wisdom is accompanied by humility. You've shown us your pride. Show us your humility. The NIV translation refers to the need for Humility. The same passage in King James uses the word meekness. The passage reads, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Other translations, instead of using the word humility, use the words gentleness of wisdom. Hmm. We should note that humility, meekness, gentleness do not mean Weakness. The Greek word did not connote a mild, weak person who's always nice, but rather one who 
had the idea of strength under control. It was used to describe a tamed horse, which is powerful, but submissive to its master. A meek person may be very strong, but is completely submissive to the will of God. James seems to like to use this trap in his messages. In the previous chapter, he challenges his readers in the same way with regard to faith. He says, but someone will say you have faith, but I have deeds. Then he springs the trap, saying, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. His point is that real faith will produce actions. It'll produce a difference in your life. A faith that does not provoke a response maybe isn't real faith at all. Maybe isn't faith at all. How can one show that they have wisdom unless they demonstrate the wisdom by what they do? Let's first look at the positive side of this this scripture. What does the passage say? It says wisdom that comes from heaven has certain characteristics. It's pure, it's peace-loving, it's considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. I found it interesting to compare this particular passage with a passage in Galatians that describes the fruit of the Spirit. I think most of us know this by heart. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Sounds similar, doesn't it? Maybe fruit from the same tree. A similar list is found in the Beatitudes. It speaks of meekness, mercy, peacemakers, righteousness, and those that pure in heart. Same message again. The negative side also provides a list. It refers to bitter envy. It refers to selfish ambition, boasting, and denial of the truth. James doesn't hold back in his condemnation of the negative side, does he? He says it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's of the devil. That's not holding back. And it causes disorder and evil practices. Where our focus is on ourselves and what we deserve, what our rights are, that's envy. Or if we focus on what we can get out of relationships, that's selfish ambition. We are then tools of the devil and we know his goal is to kill, steal, and destroy. These characteristics in anybody will create disorder and will lure many into evil practice. And certainly, that is not the wisdom that's granted by God. On first reading of this passage, I sort of kind of took it to heart and I started to ask myself, if I possessed wisdom that comes from heaven, or if I possessed wisdom that comes from the other place, or perhaps more accurately, no wisdom at all. 
Like a doctor diagnosing a disease, I had to look at the symptoms. Do I envy my neighbor's house or their car? Or are my motives pure? Do I value mercy or do I step on people to get ahead? Do I exhibit self-control or am I ruled by my passions of anger, lust, or greed? Would anyone consider that I displayed godly character or would they see me immersed in the values of this world? In this passage, James stresses twice the need for peace. He tells us being peace-loving is a characteristic of godly wisdom. On following up that statement, he says that peacemakers sow in peace to raise a harvest of righteousness. If we see disorder, discontent, needless arguments in our families, in our work, or in our church, it's likely that we're not operating on the basis of wisdom that comes down from heaven. The wisdom that comes from heaven, in summary, it displays godly character. The wisdom that is of the devil displays a selfish, self-centered character. What about the peer? Can a church have wisdom? Can a church display godly character or another kind? More importantly, we should ask ourselves, Does our church display godly character? In a video that I recently watched, the presenter made an interesting but confusing statement with respect to churches. He said, culture eats strategies and policies for breakfast. He said, character eats culture for breakfast. Initially, that didn't make much sense to me. got me thinking about bacon and eggs and toast and jam and coffee. Later, I began to understand. If we as individuals exhibit wisdom that comes from heaven, soon our church will be known as a community that is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. When that happens... the cultural expectation for our church will be the expectation that people will see those characteristics and be attracted to them. People will come because they see our church as having godly character. When that is our culture, our leadership will create strategies and policies that reflect those values. And the church will be known to have godly character, which comes from wisdom that comes from heaven. Does that sound like a church you'd like to belong to? I would. I believe that in many ways the the peer has developed a culture of wisdom, of that type of wisdom. Because I see those characteristics in many of our people. It certainly is a goal that we should constantly strive for, to have a character and a culture of godly wisdom. But you should note, just a little caution here, that the process of creating a culture of godly wisdom in the church starts with the individual. 
It starts with you, and it starts with me. It starts with first a prayer for wisdom, then accepting the characteristics of wisdom and living them out as the Holy Spirit enables us. Purity, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, merciful, impartial, sincere, and producing good fruit. Then looking to foster those characteristics in others. And finally, championing those characteristics. All that the church does, whatever the church is you're involved with. Romans 16:19 urges us, be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Sounds like good advice, doesn't it? Let us constantly be wise with the wisdom that comes from heaven and displays that wisdom with humility, producing good deeds. Simple advice, isn't it? You can do it in two words. Be wise. Now, just close with a word of prayer, if I may. Heavenly Father, we rest in your presence. We trust in your wisdom. And we trust that uh, we can rely on that. And we can be built up by it. And we can be made into the character of Christ if we just submit to you. Heavenly Father, I pray for our church that we might be a church with a culture of godly wisdom, that we might be a church that is welcoming and merciful and impartial and sincere and pure. Be with us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. I'll just ask the worship team.